our scripture today dares to say that we can give all of our anxieties to God. How does that work exactly? Many of you know how that works because I know you have experienced that in real life. Uh, let me just mention Dr. Deb Stottlemyre, who is one of our elders, who had our call for the offering and our prayer this morning. She is one of my heroes of faith. As I think many of you know, most of you, uh, she lost her husband last summer after being a quadriplegic for nine years following a bicycle accident. And Craig certainly was a hero of faith. When people would ask, you know, why did this happen? Instead of saying, why me, Craig would say, why not? And he was a big fan of the book of Job for obvious reasons. But Craig, perhaps even more than Job, understood the larger spiritual conflict going on and the forces of evil which are responsible for the suffering in this world. The subject of suffering is a pretty heavy topic and maybe you were coming to worship today hoping to get a lift, and I'll just say it's coming. <laughs> but before we get there, let's just remind ourselves that this is not trivia, that we are all subject to suffering. It is a fact of life. No one is exempt. You know those perfect-looking people on social media and the celebrities who seem to have it all? That's right. They suffer too. They just lie about it. The problem with suffering is, is not just the pain or the grief or the helplessness. The biggest problem with suffering is the loss of meaning. It's one thing to suffer because you made a mistake or you did something wrong. You brought trouble on yourself, perhaps. That kind of suffering at least has meaning, e even if it's a bad sort of meaning. Suffering that comes after doing something good, however, is hard to deal with. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And at least we can say Jesus knew what he was talking about because he walked that walk of faith all the way to the cross. 
And on the cross, he even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's not lose sight of the fact, however, that he was quoting from Psalm 23, which ends on a very triumphant note. We sometimes feel that Jesus, Jesus uh, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was maybe evidence that even Jesus lost faith at that moment, but he didn't. The problem of suffering cannot be minimized. Meaningless suffering, especially, challenges our faith. We've been focused on the suffering in Ukraine recently. And it is appropriate that we do so. Our humanity cries out for relief, for justice, for some kind of renewal to come out of this. And we rightfully cry out in our spirit for, for God to, to intervene. And we think not only of the horrendous suffering of the Ukrainians, but of the Russian soldiers as well, who were not responsible for the orders they were given. Many avowed atheists, in fact, proclaim the non-existence of God because of the existence of meaningless suffering. Today, we're going to finish our brief survey of the book of 1 Peter. And I have personally benefited from Pastor Tara's Overcomer series which she has presented based on the book of 1 Peter. It is a book that dares to proclaim that faith that is secure in Christ will prevail. Since we belong to Christ, we will overcome the trials of life and the attacks of the evil one. Before we conclude that study, let's hear a testimony of faith by Greg Jonathan. The feelings that I was going through were very intense. There was pressure in my head, in my shoulders, and that's why I had to leave. Recently, uh, I've had depression, and on top of this depression, or in this depression, I struggle with loneliness. And in this loneliness, it just brings me to a dark place where I don't want to interact with people. Uh, I tend to isolate myself and not express myself and how I'm feeling to people. And on top of this loneliness and depression, there's so many things going on in my life that pile on top of it. And it got to a point where it was just breaking me. And through that breaking, I was just bottling it up inside. And as I bottled up these emotions, these feelings, um, I just couldn't take it anymore. It just brought me to a really dark place. So I was at one of my favorite coffee shops, decided to journal 
uh, for the first time in a long time. There are many ways that I tried to connect with God, whether it's walking, whether it's praying on my knees, but journaling came up and I was just expressing myself to God it, to the point where it brought me to tears. The feelings that I was going through were very intense. There was pressure in my head and my shoulders, and that's why I had to leave uh, because I couldn't take it anymore. I felt lonely. I didn't know what I was gonna do for the future. I was looking back to my past. I was comparing myself to other people. There was just a whole myriad of things going on at that point, and I just spilled it out to God. I left that scene, Olive Market. I got in my car and I said, God, what do I do now? As I was crying, I drove off and something said in my mind to praise me while you are hurting. Give me praise and I'll give you a blessing while you're hurting. And that's what I did. I turned on the song Communion and that song just spoke to my heart. There's a part in the song, uh, if I can read it for you. Take me back to the garden. Lead me back to the moment I heard your voice. Take me back to communion. Lead me back to the moment I saw your face. It feels so good to know you are my friend. And this is the garden. Here in the place, I find you close. This is communion. So as I felt lonely and I was listening to this song, it just touched my heart because it let me know that God was there. God has never left. I've been through this before. This is when my heart started beating again and I could feel God. And as I was crying and praising Jesus in that moment, knowing that he was there in my depression, God was with me in my loneliness when I felt in the darkest place. That was just one uh, instance that he just reminded me that he was there. And as I drove, I got up to the mountain and I found this um, little card in my car. And it was another <laughs> solidifier that Jesus was there. It says here in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, one of my favorite verses, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So when I was feeling lost, when I was feeling lonely, that verse popped up. It was in my car. And on the back is another affirmation that Jesus is there. It says, you don't have to figure it out or find your way alone. Let me lead. I know the way. Jesus. And from there, my faith was solidified again. The pressure and the weight was lifted for that moment. I still go through it, but this reminder that Jesus is there, I'm not alone, that was a solidifying moment uh, for my faith. I'm Gregory Janopin, and this is my story. I appreciate Greg a lot for making that that video. Um, I appreciate his honesty, and I appreciate the 
the fact that he, he found a way through by practicing the presence of God. It also speaks to a very real uh, issue that suffering does not always come from external circumstances. Some of the worst suffering in the, that's present in the human race uh, is, comes from internal circumstances. And it is no less real. In fact, it is perhaps even more real. Um, it's been tragically common to hear statements like, oh, it's just all in your head. Well, if it's in your head, it is real. To say that something is in your head is, is not to uh, undercut its reality or its validity. Uh, it is simply to pinpoint the locus of the suffering. And, truthfully, whether from external circumstances or internal anxieties, all suffering involves the internal. And so in that sense, to cast our anxieties on God really makes a lot of sense to the person of faith. So I appreciate what Greg had to say for a number of reasons, but before talking about how God can answer our sufferings, it's important that we remind ourselves of things that we've already covered in 1 Peter. And one of the first things we discover in this book is that through the gospel, we know we have been chosen and we have been saved. Notice 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And by the way, he's quoting words right out of Exodus 19, in which, in that context, God is applying it to a literal group of slaves that he has rescued out of Egypt. And this is what 1 Peter says. But you, speaking now, to believers in Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And we cannot emphasize enough that God is talking to us as his people present tense, his rescue of us in past tense. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into 
his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Peter seems to be referring especially to Gentiles there, but not exclusively so. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is Peter's takeaway from all of that? Simply this. Don't lose your faith because of opposition and suffering. The entire book of 1 Peter is written to people who were being threatened by persecution. They were suffering not because of evil things they had done. They were suffering suffering because of the opposition of evil toward them. It was unjustified suffering. And so the book of 1 Peter tells us today, don't lose your faith because of opposition and suffering. Why? Because you are already God's precious possession. He has already rescued you. He has already made you his people. That is the facts of God's rescue and his claim on us. As we move through the book of 1 Peter and we land in chapter 4, we discover that Peter acknowledges that all people suffer. It's not just the righteous that suffer. (laughs) It's the wicked also who suffer. Everybody suffers. We, in a sense, suffer not because we are singled out, but because we belong to the human race who is being attacked by the evil one. Nevertheless, there is a difference between the suffering of the righteous and the suffering of the wicked, and the suffering of the wicked is worse. And we sometimes get that backwards. We sometimes think that, oh, the, you know, the righteous people, they, you know, they get singled out and they suffer worse than anybody else. But notice what 1 Peter 4, 15 to 18 says. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Notice that unlike the wicked, the suffering of the righteous has no shame. For, verse 17 says, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's almost like Peter is saying, we can look forward to this judgment. And if we're receiving suffering, don't forget, the judgment does start with us. But that's not a bad thing when you are already declared God's possession. It's a completely different perspective on judgment. Maybe different than many of us have been taught. 
But notice this next verse, and this is a quote from Proverbs. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, that appears to be a difficult kind of saying because on the face of it, it might seem that Peter is undercutting all that assurance he gave us back in chapter 2 about belonging to God, being the royal priesthood, the holy nation, and God's, God's own possession. Is Peter undercutting what he said back in chapter 2? No. What he is pointing out here, if you look at it carefully, is that once again, the wicked suffer differently than the righteous do. It's even worse for the wicked. Why? Because they don't have the meaning attached to judgment and suffering that the righteous do. This also points out that even for the righteous, salvation is not a self-help program, it's a rescue. The hardness or the difficulty of being saved is not God's difficulty. It's in our perception many times. It is not hard for God to save us. In fact, he says, I've already done that. I've already accomplished that. But sometimes in the midst of suffering, it's hard for us to see that. Is suffering a barrier to faith? Well, for some it is. Uh, for example, as, as we've already mentioned, the problem of suffering seems to be a compelling argument for many against the existence of God. But let's think about this for a moment, keeping in mind what Peter has been telling us. The believer, the believer, unlike the non-believer, knows that suffering is not normal. The unbeliever has to accept suffering as normal. They really have no right to object to suffering because they don't have a divine moral platform on which to make judgments against suffering. It's just the normal process of evolution, if you please. It's just the way things were supposed to be. The believer, however has the moral high ground here and has a right to object to suffering because it is not representative of God's perfect creation. Believers know that they are created by a loving God and redeemed by a suffering Savior. And that gives profound meaning. Suffering without meaning 
is the worst kind of suffering. No hope. If evolution is responsible not just for intelligence, but also for morals, that's a scary thought. Why are we still fighting each other today if we've evolved so far? Put another way, if evolution created the mind and the moral soul of the most advanced species on earth, it seems like we should have a higher moral IQ by now. Why are we still waging senseless wars? Why are we still inventing ever more clever ways to make our enemies suffer? Evolution's answer is, it is what it is. But only a God perspective can say this isn't the way it's supposed to be. There is such a thing as evil. And 1 Peter 5 points that out very strongly. And there is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And believers know by faith that God will make things right. In fact, we believe in a God who took our sufferings on himself. We really, we really have not meditated on that enough. And, and part of the reason is Meditating on the sufferings of the cross is not a pleasant thing. But I have to say, when you're faced with images on the news of people going through horrendous suffering through no fault of their own, people grieving the loss of their children their parents, seeing their loved ones blown up in front of them, suddenly the cross starts to make sense. Jesus was not exempting himself from the human race. Instead, he embraced the human race. Even those who were torturing him to death, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And if we can say anything else about the suffering that is going on in this world, especially the suffering that is being perpetrated by human beings onto other human beings, we have to say, we still, Father, don't know what we're doing. And we have a God who knows that kind of suffering intimately. And he has the solution. We can have faith in that kind of God. So how does all this make a difference in real life? First Peter says, don't be surprised if you have hard times. Like Craig says, why not me? 
Life is sometimes hard, and it is often unfair. But those with the gospel, and this is the the central key of, of 1 Peter, those with the gospel can rejoice because they share in the sufferings of Christ. You see how it's come full circle now. First of all, Jesus came to share our sufferings. And by doing that, he gained the right, the anointing, the inauguration of bringing a new kingdom to this earth of which he is the king. And it's come full circle now because we now share in the sufferings of our Messiah, who First Peter 5 calls the chief shepherd. Unlike the wicked, the future of the believer is secure even when it feels like it's hard to be saved and the judgment of God is falling on them. According to 1 Peter, we don't need to lose faith because of the harsh realities of life. The harsh realities of life will come. But chapter 5 concludes that our future is secure. We will share in the glory of the chief shepherd, verse 4. Because of that, we want to look after God's flock. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5 is addressed, first of all, to the elders and pastors of the church, saying, look, be an example of faith. Take the, the strength of faith that you've received from God and pass it on. And then he addresses younger people. And he says, don't lose your faith. Follow the examples that you've given, the great examples of faith. So because of that, says Peter, we want to look after God's flock by being an example of faith, even during hard times. If we feel weighed down with responsibilities, suffering, and uncertainty, we can remember that we are secure in Christ. And because of all of that, we can say, along with Peter, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I appeal to us today. Let us not just accept, but let's embrace the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And know, not just intellectually, but know in our very guts that our future and our present is secure in Christ. Never let go. When hard times come, 
cast all of your anxiety on Christ because he cares for you.